every day during this great and terrible pause, Cood Street is spending 10 minutes or so with readers and book lovers from around the world, asking them what they're reading and what they'd recommend to anyone with a bit of time on their hands. Today I'm spending 10 minutes or so with the John W. Campbell Memorial Award-nominated author of Wolves and the Smoke and editor of We Robots, an enormous new anthology of robot fiction, Simon Ings, who joins me from somewhere in leafy green England. Hello, Simon. Hello, it's so leafy. It's so green. There are dolphins. There are plesiosaurs. It's great. It's great. I'm having such fun. I do hope everyone listening to this is having as much fun as I am. Um, and uh, are well and uh, all the rest of it. But so yes, me, I'm, I'm having a ridiculous amount of fun here. Are to you? Be I was going to ask yeah. you, I mean, how are you coping with the great and terrible pause? Are you reading, working, functioning? <laughs> Yeah. I, I went back to full-time writing earlier this year, having had some years on a, a magazine called New Scientist. Uh, so I went back to sitting in my eerie and working from home and avoiding all distractions. And the world has copied me, essentially. <laughs> Not that I'm a megalomaniac or anything, but will you guys please just drop my coattails and let me get on? <laughs> no, it's been... Um, it's. It's been a grand time for us all, provided that we've had the uh, the leisure and the mm. um, convenience to to do so, to regroup and figure out what it is that we were put on the planet for. Yeah. And for those of us lucky enough not to be drowning in, you know, personal tragedy or or, or logistical chaos, um, I think it's been a, a very valuable time to work out what. Um, where our values sit. And that sounds like a very, you know, that sounds like a rather grandiloquent statement. Well, it is a grandiloquent statement, let's face it. But it's it's something as simple as, um, you know, do I need to go into the office? Do I need, are the people that I'm working with the people who are bringing out the best in me? And just simple questions like that, we've all had the chance to ask. And the trouble is that our, our news culture doesn't allow us to take those moments to breathe and i think we've we seize these moments where we can and what's and we all do one time or another but what's extraordinary is that huge proportion of the planet is taking a breath at the same moment (laughs) so you know that's that's quite exciting do do you see things do you think things will change do you see your worldview or your perspective on things changing during this time i think Change, maybe not, but certainly a, a different emphasis. It's it's become much more interesting now for me to witness what's going on rather than try and interfere with what's going on. Mm-hmm. I was involved in a project to, um, you know, about futures and about uh, discussing the future and about uh, um, art and technology and all the rest. All these are good things. All these are entirely valuable things. But for me personally, I've sat back and gone, yeah, but actually you look at what's going on and you try and tell the truth about it. And that's what writing is. And the two don't quite mesh. Mm -hmm. I've had years now of getting out of the office, which has been brilliant, talking to people, (laughs) speaking to people, 
People are extraordinary. They're ghastly, but they're extraordinary. <laughs> and I've had great fun with them. And uh, the other day I interviewed an artist and that artist was trying to get land for a gigantic piece of land art uh, from a despot, a famous despot who shall go nameless because I'm not quite sure whether I can talk about it or not. Yeah. And wonderfully, the despot read my newspaper article and handed a parcel of land to the artist. So I've oh, got wow. myself my own despot. So, you know, at, at that point you think, well, it's not going to get better than this. <laughs> Invited to a war zone to see a piece of land art that you can see from space that's being funded by a despot. <laughs> At which point, this might actually be better in fiction than actually doing it in real life. Yeah, so um, changing so the world I'm, from I'm home. Back changing the world from home, but I'm back. Um, I'm back writing full time now, and it's it's a it's a good it's a good place to be now. Excellent. Well, let me ask you, since it's partly what we're here for, what are you reading at the moment? And critically, is it any good? <laughs> I I read for money. So the answer <laughs> to the second question is largely no, because I read everything. Um, but uh, on top of that, well, actually, there are a couple of things. Um some of what I read is very good indeed. And I'm also reading for research for my own strange projects, sure. uh, all of which are in a fairly early stage of development. So I'm reading quite widely. So the bookshelf is looking fun, actually. It's yeah. looking genuinely fun. So the book that I've just finished uh, is by Robert Hugh Benson. And it's called Lord of the World. And it was written in 1904. And reading this, you realise where the Inklings and C.S. Lewis came yeah. from and where Charles Williams came out of what they were reading. Yeah. Because yeah. obviously no one produces out of nothing. There's there's a there's a, a kind of cultural milieu which makes those works possible. Mm -hmm. And uh, Robert Q. Benson's Lord of the World is the most extraordinary uh, tale of the apocalypse. Okay. It's a future set. It's set in the future. There are flying machines called Volors, which work. They're somewhere between an airplane and a, a, an airship, which, of course, is lovely to read about now because those are exactly the kinds of designs that people are playing <laughs> with in an attempt to save the airline industry. So that's, Absolutely. Yeah. So there's a lot of incidental invention, which is great fun. Um, the fact that you can have suburbs and motorways is big news in 1904. You know, this is speculative <laughs> stuff in 1904. And so you're reading, I mean, what I love is reading about the world as it is, as if it was science fiction, because yeah. it seems a much better way of unpacking, uh, yeah. uh, unpacking the world to look at it in that way. And if you do that kind of exoticist orientalist thing of, of going back into the early history of science fiction, you find some real gems, uh, which you're reading in a very decadent way. Mm -hmm. You know, you're not really reading it as a reader of 1904 would have read it. You're reading it so many years on going, ah, and this is the way the world unpacked and here you were right and here you were wrong. I have to say, Benson staggeringly right about everything. Really? What's lovely about it? No, he was, he was fascinating. What it, okay. What's exciting about Benson is that he was a, um, a, a Church of England uh, priest, vicar, who converted to Catholicism mm -hmm. because his view was that um, with the death of God, as, you know, we, we've all read our Nietzsche or we pretend to, um, 
with the death of God, with the abandonment of uh, a sort of consensual religious practice or religious faith, then suddenly human beings were without values. Now, the moment mm. you are without shared values with other people, that's the moment in which it's quite hard to imagine something bigger than you are. Mm-hmm. And um, if you can't imagine something of which you are a part, that's a real problem existentially, because that means you are death really matters. Yeah. If you die in service of a cause, even if it's just the cause of, well, I've always loved ballet and I was a ballet dancer in my 20s and then I taught ballet and I made sure that my my nephews got to see some really great performances and they're kind of into it. That's that's something bigger than yourself. It doesn't yeah. have to be God. It doesn't have to be communism or whatever, whatever it happens to be. It can be you know, just ordinary cultural stuff that actually survives you. Yeah. If you take away one of the major props of, of that mechanism, and religion is or was a huge prop sure. to that, then suddenly you're, you're terrified and you will reach for, well, what happened in the 20th century, of course, is that people reached for ideologies. They treated political convictions as if they were religious yeah. with the consequences that we know. Yeah. And Benson is right at the point of waking up to that fact that the 20th century is going to be a horror show (laughs) with the decline in religion everyone's going to reach for inadequate solutions and it's going to be hell and in his case it is literal hell it is it is the apocalypse it is jedberg the mysterious american um who's who's very proper actually he's the quietest satan figure in literature it's magnificent he never does anything wrong he's just there and you know that that trouble is brewing um and so it's quite programmatic it's you know it's it's it's, i wouldn't say it was didactic but clearly benson has a view and he's not out to he's not out to experiment he's out to demonstrate his view which will not be to everyone's taste. And I think it's because I've done a lot of reading. Because of the reading I've done before, it spoke to me in a way that it might not speak to others in quite as eloquent a way. It might even annoy people. But get annoyed. (laughs) Get annoyed. It it is utterly fascinating and beautifully written. And there are visual descriptions. There's an extraordinary... I mean, I... This is not a spoiler particularly, but as the apocalypse looms, you begin to realise that he's going to be very, very canny and he isn't going to do that kind of C.S. Lewis, Aslan the Lion, coming down, walking down Kensington High Street thing. He's actually going to say that there there is the world of the spirit and the world of uh, innate matter. And actually, at this point, they will not connect they yeah. will rub up against each other in that slightly sort of M. John Harrison way. Yeah. But they're not really going to connect. And in his description of passing between the two, his description of the world melting away and the shadows not quite working is extraordinary. Okay. It's, um, it's sort of Wyndham Lewis levels of visionary visual description. It's stunning. It's really stunning. Right. So yeah. you've read Lord of the World. Anything else you wanted to mention? <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, I've really... Uh, I've, no, no, I've one's really enough. If it's, 
Once enough. Well, I've been reading Camus the Plague because you kind of have to. It's rather well, silly yeah. not to have read <laughs> this point. Um, and Robert Valser, and uh, I'm doing a lot of work on, um, and actually a lot of work on writers and despots at the moment, mm-hmm. uh, the relationship between writers and power. And uh, it's given me the opportunity to read uh, The Pike by Lucy Hughes Hallett, uh, which is about Gabriel D'Annunzio, who no one remembers, but he was the most celebrated novelist of the early 20th century, late 19th, early Mm -hmm. 20th century. And uh, this is the poet who stole a city. He invaded a city of uh, Fiume and, and ran it as a poet, a sort of poet dictator. And it's the romantic Dionysian, we can create our own values in that Robert Benson kind yeah, of way. Yeah, we yeah, know yeah, we have religion, but we, we are going to take the form of religion and we're going to create our own values. And he's he's sort of harmless and he's sort of funny and he's sort of invented fascism. <laughs> <laughs> sort of. <laughs> sort of, sort of, kind of. Kind of, sort of, invaded fascism. And you you see how, um, uh, well, this comes back to, do you remember Hakim Bey's book about um, autonomous, temporary autonomous zones? Mm-hmm. His, he wrote a book about, or an essay rather, about pirate utopias. Mm-hmm. And his whole argument, and this was moving on from the idea that you could have, you could embrace a um, uh, an ideology and everything would be fine. His argument was that everything changes, everything moves, everything needs a hierarchy and every hierarchy decays. Yep. Uh, which, of course, we now get told to us by uh, people who are uh, perceived as people like um, uh, uh, um, Jordan Peterson. Mm-hmm. But uh, Hacking Bay is an anarchist and he's saying the same thing. What you want, you want to build a hierarchy and then before it decays, you want to strip it down and move on. So you will only get human freedom in tiny little windows of space and time. Mm-hmm. And what you want is to create an environment in which you can, you can develop utopia again and again and again mm-hmm. and again and again because it will not last. No. And, uh, and with Denuncio, he created this pirate utopia in the in the city of Fiume um, uh, on the Adriatic coast and within the year it was decaying within the year it was becoming fascist but he didn't develop it into an ideology that attempted to last that was Mussolini because Mussolini was a realist he was much less extreme actually he was way less extreme he was way less violent he was way less crazy but he was a realist and a politician yeah whereas denuncio was a poet and (laughs) because he's a a politician and he's trying to do a sensible job that he ends up creating italian fascism so it's it's, (sighs) so it's scary stuff (laughs) so let me ask you Let me ask you a second question. Since we're all stuck inside, Simon, is there anything that you would recommend to people? What would you recommend people to people as an approach to, to their reading? Is it a time to 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 pursue serious pursuits in your reading, or to go for pleasure and comfort? Do you think that's a really interesting question? I am not very good at pursuing pleasure and comfort. 
myself. I, 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 it tends to slide off me. I tend to feel guilty because I was, you know, because I was <laughs> brought up Presbyterian. <laughs> what are you doing? Um, I do think that pleasure and comfort can be got from harder stuff at the moment because we have a little bit more time yeah. and we should embrace that fact. Okay. And that's, that's great. I mean, I, I'm an, I'm a, I'm hopeless with Netflix. I adore and and Amazon Prime. I adore Bosch. Uh, I adore, you know, I uh, what's 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 the other show? Uh, Better Call Saul. And I haven't watched either of them, not because I don't love them, but because I don't need that level of allowing myself to be taken away out of myself yeah. for an hour. Yeah. I, uh, it's so I found myself reading more complex things because uh, my brain's rested enough to just get pure enjoyment out of them. Yeah. So there's one book I would strongly recommend and it's on the on the serious side but it's it's a lot of learning worn incredibly lightly actually it's it's a real delight and that's Rutger Bregman's new book Humankind which is a, an attempt to reset our attitudes towards other people. Yeah. And at first you think oh this is going to be putting Rousseau up against Hobbes. It's going to be putting up the idea that um, the Hobbes's idea, which is that you need institutions and within institutions, people are wonderful and creative and yeah. elegant and uh, unimaginably gifted. And the moment you take those institutions away, their dogs frothing with rage, which is the essential conservative point of view. And then you have Rousseau who comes along saying civilization is a shit show. It it, it creates uh, unfairness, inequality, um, war, pestilence, all these things. This has been a terrible mistake and we should all go back to eating the nuts and berries. (laughs) And if you put those two against each other, you don't actually get anywhere because uh, the, the terms of the debate are are twisted and wrong and they don't take into account the fact that we've been in urban civilizations for so long now that even if Rousseau were true you can't go back you can't step into the same river twice we've had so long building institutions that even if the institutions existed to manufacture psychopaths which is a you know which is an arguable idea yeah well okay that may be true and that may be awful, but the fact is you've now got 10% of people who register on the multiphasic scale, so you can't just take this down without the psychopaths taking over. So what are you going to do in the present? Rutger Eggman comes along and he writes a book called Humankind and he's basically getting us to take a breath and to say that, yes, institutions are useful, yes, institutions corrupt eventually, so they need constant renewal, but underneath all that, people are quite decent. Yeah. And why do we keep in because we understand the value of our institutions and hierarchies, if you, if you want to use the word, because we understand their value, we tend to misbalance our argument. So we say, because if we didn't have them, people would be dogs frothing with rage. And Bregman's going, no, that's not true. The institutions are useful and valuable, but people are not monstrous. Yeah, yeah. And time and again, we have reports of one sort or another that argue for the monstrosity of people. And he unpicks them one at a time. And it's stunning. 
Wow. So, uh, he starts anecdotally yeah. with the story of, um, ah, now what's it called? It's, uh, the book about the kids on the island. Lord of the Flies. Lord of the Flies. Thank you. Thank you. William Golding, Lord yes. of the Flies. And he says, you know, school children get taught Lord of the Flies. And fair enough, because it's a, it's a good book. Mm-hmm. But no one remembers that this actually happened. Mm. In 1965, yeah. there were a, there were a party of children who were stranded on an island for over a year and they, uh, they had no fresh water and they survived. They blossomed. They looked after the guy who cracked his leg mm. and he came out bitter than before. People do not behave like um, like the children in that book. It's the book itself is valuable because it's fiction and it's an idea. It's a what yeah. if? It's a speculation. But actually, why does nobody know the story of what actually happened? <laughs> it's sort of crazy that you'd think that having read that book, you'd be amazed that there's this story out there of, of what actually happened to a group of children who were stranded yeah. on an island. But I hadn't heard of it before reading the Breckman. I'm reasonably well read. It's kind of crazy. I've not heard of that story. Yeah. Anyway, this is this is a very gentle way into what becomes a really excoriating takedown of some of the great shibboleths of our age. Um, the bystander effect. Yeah. No, that's the bad reporting effect. The <laughs> poor woman who was murdered, the poor woman who was murdered in New York. All her neighbours phoned the police. All of them. Yeah. <laughs> all of them who had phoned. Yeah. Uh, there was confusion at the switchboard because so many people had phoned. And the poor, you know, poor woman who died, died in the arms of a neighbour who had rushed out into the middle of the night, knowing that there was a maniac out there to, yeah. to see if she could save her. Yeah. So that's bad reporting. Yep. Now, we're, we're kind of used now, especially since... Because um, that's the Kitty Genovese uh, story, like- isn't it? Yeah, that's yeah. right. The one that yeah. Ellison yeah. wrote into the Whimper of Whip Dogs or something, I think. That one. Yes. Yes, yeah. Yeah, yeah that one. Um, now, we, now that people like, you know, Joan Lanier have weighed in, uh, particularly, and it's a, his book about 10 reasons to give up social media is very good indeed. Uh, we're used to the idea that the news cycle is weaponized against us. It's there to generate anxiety. The more anxious we are, the more we will listen, the more we will engage with the news cycle or social media or whatever it is. So we know that these institutions are weaponized against us and some of us have stepped back from that and we're leading, we're, we're only reading the long form articles. We're only reading the scientific press. We're being very rational. We're being very calm. <laughs> at which point, at which point the Bregman book becomes really scary because he then goes through all the various shibboleths of the scientific literature, taking them down. Yeah. For example, the Stanford prison experiment, mm-hmm. Philip Zimbardo's experiment. Philip Zimbardo gets a lot of stick in this book and it is very funny. <laughs> It is it is a delight because all of us who slightly suspected that Zimbardo was full of it uh, are basically given all the evidence and all the ammunition we could possibly <laughs> want in uh, Bregman's book. Um, the idea that if you took students, gave half of them a prison warder's uniform and the other half an orange jumpsuit for a for a for a prisoner and then put them into a prison environment how would they treat each other of course the prison guards would abuse the prisoners this was and mm-hmm. after two days 
according to Zimbardo, after two days, the experiment collapsed in a welter of violence and recrimination and all the rest of it. Not true. Not true. And in fact, the BBC, the British Broadcasting Corporation, actually restaged this experiment in the 1970s. And it was the most boring thing you've ever seen on telly. <laughs> and they had to abandon it. Because basically what happened is they all sat around drinking tea. Um, <laughs> but the, the, the experimental design that was filmed by the BBC was actually good. And Zimba yeah. um, uh, Philip Zimbardis was, was very, very shaky indeed. And then you get things like the uh, the, mem the, uh, the classic memory experiment in which a person is um, brought in to apply mild but increasingly severe electric shocks to a person who's trying to perform a memory test to see if yeah. negative conditioning yeah. will improve memory. And that was, oh, what was, what was his name? I'll have to look it up. <laughs> Hang on a second. What was his name? He was a he was a he was a situationist artist. He was an artist before he was a experimental psychologist. So his experimental design was a bit shaky. But he was never that interested in experimental psychology anyway. He was always more of a a, a, a provocateur. Yeah, yeah. And um, oh, what the devil was his name? Anyway, let's let's move on. Let's look it up later. Um, the way that ex that experiment has been repeated and has shown the same thing that people can be persuaded to uh increase the voltage of the uh the uh, electricity flowing through the subject who is of course in on the game and is an actor yeah, performing yeah. acting and all the rest of it this experiment has been repeated and people do tend to ratchet up the voltage but the original interpretation of the experiment was that people are robots who do what they're told. So yeah. if you put someone in the Wehrmacht or in the SS or wherever, and you give them orders and you give them a very strict regimen, people will generally obey orders unthinkingly. If you read the transcripts of both the original study and the, the, the later retrials, what you discover is that that is, not his, that is not what is going on. People are desperate to do the right thing. Yeah. People are desperate to work out what the right thing is. So yeah. if you apply rhetorical drivers to say how important the study is uh. and how much riding on it, then people say, OK, greater good. I, I don't want to disappoint this person who's, who's, who's brought me in. They're saying how important it is. This is not right, but I'm going to do it. it. It was by no means 100% uptake on this, no. this logic ladder. But yeah. enough, uh, enough to be disturbing. But that is actually what is going on. We are all desperate to be good. Yeah. So Bregman's thesis is if we're all desperate to be good, we must be very, very careful about how that can be manipulated. Yeah. So the people say we need more. We need more empathy. No, we need less empathy. <laughs> we need more cool regard for everyone yeah. and less empathy for a particular group because you only acquire empathy for a particular group by dehumanizing another that's the way oxytocin works yeah. you stuff monkeys full of oxytocin and they love their the, the mates in their troop and yeah. they'll tear everyone else apart it's yeah. it's a balance so you know bregman's book is also a, a you know a plea that we stop talking about empathy for heaven's sake and just have a a cool calm regard for everyone and give everyone the time of day it's the most optimistic book i've read this year wow possibly more than a year um it makes a much more cogent argument than uh you know 
books that would appear alongside it on the same shelf, like The Pinker and The, yeah. the Pinker, The Better Angels of Our Nature. It's, it's not bad. It's interesting. But the, the, statistically, it goes a bit strange. And yeah. uh, Bregman unpicks that a bit. What I really liked about this book is that this is a guy who's on his third, fourth book, something like that. And he's he himself is on an intellectual path. And rather than double down on anything he said before, he said, yeah, you know, that last book, I was wildly wrong about this because I didn't mm-hmm. know about this, paper, which explains why this happened. So, you know, I was making this big argument about Easter Island and it turns out all that stuff about Easter Island is nonsense mm-hmm. and here's why. And so there's a real intellectual honesty running through the thing, which yeah. is a delight. And you, you get the sense also from that that this is not the last word. Yeah, that you can argue that'll with it, evolve that you, beyond, yeah. Do, and that's, it's, uh, I wouldn't say it's, you know, refreshing because nobody else does it. Plenty of people are, you know, are good at their job. Um, but it's really nice to see. It's, yeah. it's a, it's a good one. Excellent. Humankind, Rutger Bregman. Okay. So there's that. So let me ask you then, we've talked about what you're reading, what you'd recommend. What do you have in the world? What have you been doing? <laughs> I, I worked out the other day that if I was ever going to write a a big sequence of anything I would have to start now yeah. because, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not that old. I don't feel that old, but when you start talking about sequences of books, then you're mm. talking about years at a time. Once you yeah. break life down into that thing, yeah, I've only got two or three shots at this. So I'm working on not just one, but two, one of them will fall by the wayside and one of them will survive. That's the idea. Uh, two big sequences of novels mm-hmm. which i've not done before and it's partly because when i was writing big fat novels things like uh, the weight of numbers and dead water mm-hmm. i tended to pack four or five really good novels into one and make a very dense book that that a handful of people adored and most people went what on earth are you doing <laughs> uh and i sat back uh, perhaps a little bit before this this lockdown and said to myself, well, what do I gain by packing so much content in? Okay, I've, I've made this peculiar thing I wanted to make, but I've done that now. I've done that now twice. Yeah. Why don't I... Why don't I leave it expanded? The one thing I haven't done is leave the stuff expanded. Yeah. Um, leave the stuff more, more accessible. So I'm working on two big... Uh, two big sequences, um, which involves a lot of reading and a lot of forcing myself to write as I research. Mm-hmm. Because when you when you work on one book, you can procrastinate for a while by researching everything, mm-hmm. and you don't get anything done for six months. But you're you know you're, you're working to a higher purpose, and it's all a bit you know commercially and yeah. morally it's a bit of a dubious tactic. But you can just about get away with it. Yeah. Whereas if you're working on a sequence and you're working out what you want to do and what will keep your interest over 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 more years, over four or five or six or even seven years, then you have to write at the same time as you research. So that's what I'm doing. So there's very little to report that's out there because um, it's going to take me a while to get <laughs> going. But but in the meantime, to keep life in, um, I had this wonderful opportunity to do and. Thank you for thank you for the plug earlier to do this anthology of a hundred best robot stories called 
We Robots. Mm -hmm. And that comes out in September from Head of Zeus. And when I was offered the task, I thought, well, I'm a writer. My first thought was, ah, money. You know, (laughs) fair enough. Uh, My second thought was, oh, this is going to be a bit samey. This is going to be a bit persnickety and not very human, not very warm. Okay, I was so wrong. I was so wrong. Uh, Because if you talk about robots, what you're essentially talking about is slaves. And that's that's what a robot is. A robot is a grudge. It's there so that you can get the benefit of slaves without the moral, um, without descending to the moral low ground of being a slave owner. And so virtually all robot stories are are slaver stories. Yeah. But it's it's working out what it is to be a slaver and. You know, there hasn't been a civilization out there that has not engaged in slavery. Yeah, yeah, not yeah. one. Mm-hmm. Not one. So we better embrace it, guys. And robot liter- literature turns out to be one of the ways we have embraced this. And once you get that launched in your brain, everything becomes tremendously exciting. The short story Liar by Isaac Asimov, mm-hmm. which we couldn't afford. But anyway, <laughs> the short story uh Liar becomes this extraordinarily savage and heartrending story. And this is Asimov, for heaven's sake. You yeah, don't well, expect yes. that from him. And, but I think that's partly because you're, you're not necessarily reading him in a way that he would have had the impact at his time. So on the back of that, um, I developed a very fine fear, not of the robots taking over, which was... Uh, Werner Vinge's first kind of technological singularity, that yep. the machines will get brighter than us and will just go forth and we will be left in the dust. In his original 1995 paper, he came up with two singularities. The other one is the one I'm really afraid of, which is that we police ourselves into behaving like robots. We regiment ourselves to the point in which we are serving a distributed system. And that's already happened. Mm-hmm. That's already happened. Next time you walk into an office and see two people sitting next to each other communicating through Slack, that is the technological singularity. And it's already happened. Yeah. So I'm sitting there going, okay, how do I pick this? I could do it in, I didn't really want to do it in fiction because it would have just been a long screen, which no one would have wanted to read. But then I thought, why not do a book about people behaving like robots? Mm-hmm. But as performance, or as fun, or as dance, yeah. as well as for work. And I've worked out a kind of history of our obsession with mechanisms, not through the mechanisms themselves, but through pretending to be them. Yeah. And and this has really caught my <laughs> sort of got me by the throat and is dragging me through. So one day there will be a book without a title at the moment. There will be a book about how we behave like robots, and it's going to be such fun. And it came out of this. At least I'm going to have fun doing it. Well, but, but, hope it translates. Into it. So, so it's interesting. This editorial project really changed things. Changed how you thought about things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very much, very much. Um, I think what's you know, if I'd wanted a career, if I'd wanted <laughs> a real career, I would. I'd have done the same thing again and again and again because it didn't do, you know, it, it, it didn't do 
any classical composer any harm uh, <laughs> to develop their own vocabulary <laughs> and so on. Uh, but as it is, I tend to get dragged every which way uh, by the things that I read and the things that I get involved in. And it may be that I'm going to be one of those late flowers <laughs> who can only actually get control of the the careering vehicle towards the end of their working, you know, in the last <laughs> 20 years of their working life. Yeah. Um, that's what I hope. And this lockdown has meant that I am much more steady in the way I work. Yeah. And maybe I'll, maybe I'll get there. Okay. Maybe I'll write two books that aren't completely <laughs> different. That'd be nice, wouldn't it? Well, I have to say, I will genuinely look forward to reading about your everyday robots and your book, We Robots. And for the moment, Simon Ings, thank you so very much for making the time to talk to me today. I genuinely oh, appreciate thank it. Thank you, Jonathan. It's been a delight, a real delight and an honour. Thank you. <laughs>